Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Um, so we're going to continue this series that we started a number of weeks ago, and I want to just sort of ask you a question. You guys love it when I ask you questions. Half of you think I'm trying to trick you. Um, when I say greatness, what do you think of? When you think of greatness or the idea, the concept of greatness, what do you think of? Like if someone is great, what does it mean? Of course, some of us probably think, oh, professional athletes, right? LeBron James, right? That's LeJean Brames, right? Like two of you got my reference. It's the office, in case you're curious. You think of some professional athlete, right? Like uh, some, somebody who has spent their entire life to reach the pinnacle of, of their athletics. And this is like just the, the, the best, you know, like any swimmers, basketball players, football players. It goes downhill from there. Not really. You know, golfers, tennis players, anybody, right? Um, and you think of somebody who's at the top of, the, of their game, and they've devoted everything about their life to being the best athlete they can, and this is greatness. Or maybe, maybe athletics isn't for you. Maybe you are like a scientist. You, you think of scientists as the greatest people. They've devoted their entire life to understanding the way the world works, that we all might have a better life because we understand how the world works. Maybe you think of a scientist and someone who has devoted their entire life to study and to research. Or maybe you're not into science, maybe you like authors. And this is somebody who has spent their entire life learning how to craft story that would keep you hanging on every page. And so you think of the handful of people that end up on the best, uh, bestsellers list. Or you think of politicians. Not going to touch that one at all. Just right on past that. What do you think of? When you think of what it means to be great, I think a lot of us would think uh, what it means to be great uh, narrows the pool of people, right? Like if you were to take all of the people in the world, and to be great means that we now have a handful of people we're choosing from, right? It narrows the pool. It gets smaller. And then depending on what you value in the world, you choose. It's a handful of people that are great, and you choose based on, I like science, I like math, I like whatever. Many of you know Dr. Martin Luther King had a different perspective. Dr. Martin Luther King actually expanded what it meant to be great. He actually had a scripture-soaked imagination, and he had a perspective that to be great actually expanded the pool of participants. Of the people who could be great, Dr. Martin Luther King said this. He said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love, and you can be that servant. Martin Luther King expanded what it meant to be great. It could be anybody. And his perspective actually is the perspective of the New Testament. The New Testament echoes, uh, or maybe is the initial sound of what Dr. Martin Luther King echoes. Greatness 
is a life of service. Greatness is a life of service. We began this series a couple weeks ago called Transforming the Spaces We Inhabit by the Power of the Gospel. If you have not heard this phrase enough, you're going to hear it more. Um, This is the mission that we believe we're on as a church, that we actually do believe that God has called us to bring kingdom impact everywhere we find ourselves, the places we want to be and the places we don't want to be, that the kingdom is actually supposed to transform all the spaces that we go. And in the first week, I spent time telling you what we meant by the power of the gospel. When we say by the power of the gospel, what do we mean? And last week, I talked about the role of emotional health and the spread of the gospel. And what I want you to understand today is that the kingdom life is a life of service. The kingdom life is a life of service. I'm calling this message, Greatness in the Kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? And then we'll look at scripture. So Lord, I do just welcome you. And Lord, I'm so grateful for your goodness. I'm so grateful, Lord, that you're generous. And I'm so grateful, Lord, that you give it in so much greater measure than we ever thought possible. And so, God, as we speak, as we look at your word today, Lord, I pray that you would come, that you would touch your word, that you would set us on fire, God, that you would turn us into the kind of people that actually could transform the spaces we inhabit by the power of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would put power on this message, fill me with your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would like, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And this is close to the end of the Gospel of Luke. And it's right after, what we're going to look at today is right after Luke's account of the Last Supper. This is the, the, we're all, the, uh, the disciples gather and they're eating the Passover and, and Jesus sort of reinterprets uh, the Passover meal, and that's where we get this, this communion thing that we do. And so right at the end of this, it's, it's right at the end of, uh, of this time, Jesus says, but one of you is going to betray me. How's that, right? Have people over for dinner and say, hey, just want you all to know, this is a nice dinner we're having, but one of you is going to betray me. And of course, they all look at each other like, who? Who's going to do that? And then right after, they start to wonder who among us is going to betray Jesus We read this, beginning in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, this passage of Scripture is very interesting for a number of reasons. This idea, this theme of service is not a new one for Jesus and the disciples. Like Jesus and the disciples, it's just like something that Jesus is trying to get in there through their thick skulls. That's how it was put to me as a kid. Trying to get this through your thick skull. And Jesus over and over and over again is trying to get it through to his disciples that we serve. That's who we are. We are servants. 
That's who we are as kingdom people. And uh, it's something that he's constantly trying to instill in them, so much so that like Matthew 20, we read this. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. So it looks like Jesus says the same thing over and over and over and over. Or uh, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says this, The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There's this constant drumbeat all through the Gospels that Jesus is constantly saying, We're humble and we serve. We're humble and we serve over and over and over and over. And he's been saying this for a while, And the reason I'm making such a big deal of this is because what's fascinating is after spending three years with Jesus, we get to the Last Supper and these guys seem like they didn't know. They get to the Last Supper and they're arguing over who's the greatest, which one of us is the greatest. And the fact that this is happening at the Last Supper is like these guys still don't get it. Three years with this guy. You guys have been hanging around for a few weeks, a few months, maybe some of you a few years. You know what our mission statement is. And I've just been saying it just as much as Jesus, right? It's on the wall in the back. Of course, that helps. But over and over and over, and we get to the end of three years, and they still don't get it. And so Jesus, instead of saying, guys, knocking on their heads, get it through your heads, he sets about one more time to say it the same way that he said it so many times. And what he says, the default way of being in the kingdom is to serve. The default posture of life in the kingdom is service. Like there's not another way. This is how we are. This is who we are. Serving is the way you exist in the kingdom. Your ability, though, to understand what Jesus is saying here will be uh, impacted by what you believe the gospel is. I've said this several times, and I'll probably say it several more times, but all through this series, what I have said is that we tend to truncate the gospel, right? We in the West, we sort of like, just give us the nuts and bolts. Yeah, I get this, this whole, it's, it's long. Just tell me the, the essentials. What's the basics that I got to know? What's just enough? for me to believe to be okay. And so we truncate the gospel, right? We shorten the gospel. We say, well, it's really just about Jesus died so that your sins will be forgiven and you can go to heaven when you die. You know, it's just grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And guess what? I don't have a problem with that statement at all. I think it's a biblical statement. Problem is, it's just not the gospel Jesus preached. Like he just doesn't say that. He says something else. So as much as I'm like, I'm with you. I'm like, this is it, right? This is it. Except for Jesus doesn't preach that gospel. He says something else. He says this. He says that I am the long-awaited Messiah. That the promise God made a long, long time ago to send a Messiah who was going to reverse the trend of, of the world And the brokenness and the way the world was falling apart because of the enemy and because of sin. 
This long-awaited Messiah, this promise has been fulfilled. The Messiah has now come. God's rule and reign in the world has begun. The kingdom of God has broken in. And this is good news because the world is now being set to rights because this Messiah is beginning this jubilee project that we've been waiting for. That's the gospel Jesus preaches. That's good enough for Jesus. I guess it's good enough for us, right? Is that okay? Can we just stick with what Jesus says? But here's what happens, and I've said this several times, is this gospel sort of creates problems for us, right? It creates questions. Like the whole Old Testament is devoted to this idea that broken and sinful people cannot coexist with a holy God, right? All through the Old Testament, they make all of these provisions. It's like, well, okay, you can't get close to God unless another animal dies in your place. Then you can get close. But if you bring sin into God's presence, you'll be destroyed. And so it's like this whole Testament we've been saying, you can't get close. Now that the kingdom has come, how are broken people like us ever going to get in? And the answer is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus has died And in your place, he took on your sin and died and gave you his righteousness that you now have access to God. It's the answer to a question that the gospel creates. Or another one, right? You start looking through the letters that Paul writes, and these churches start writing to Paul, and they're saying, hey, you know, you preached this gospel to us, and we've come into faith, and we're living in the kingdom now, but some of these people are starting to die. Paul, what do we do about this? What happens to all these people who have given their lives to Jesus and now they're dying? What happens? And Paul says, listen, those who die in Christ will go to be with Jesus in heaven until he returns. See, it's the answer to a question. It in and of itself is not the gospel. It's the answer to a question that the gospel creates. The reason this is important for us to understand The reason I'm taking all this time every week coming back to this is because unless we understand the gospel of the kingdom of God, we tend to make optional what the gospel makes integral. Do you understand that? We make optional what the gospel says is essential. Let me me sort of explain. Let me tease this out a little bit. You see, people tend to get really, really uncomfortable when we talk about giving money as offering, right? Some of you are like, oh boy, you got anxious, didn't you? I just said giving money. People get really, really uncomfortable with the idea of giving money to the church's offering, right? We get a little bit weird about it, and there's all kinds of stuff like people debate over whether or not you have to. It's like, hey, the Old Testament said 10%, got to give a tithe, The New Testament doesn't really say any amount. Does that mean we don't have to anymore? Does that mean we have to give more? What are we supposed to do? And there's this all this debate. Does an old number still apply? But here's the difference that understanding the gospel fully makes. You see, if the gospel is just faith in Jesus forgives your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die, giving money to the church becomes an obstacle. Let me show you why that is. Because if the way that you're saved to go to heaven is grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, all of the works are exempt from that, right? 
So what about giving money? Not necessary, is it? It's probably not necessary because there's probably grace for me if I choose not to. Probably grace, right? I'll probably be okay. And of course, we preach this gospel to you that says, hey, it's faith, not works. No amount of working will ever uh, justify you. No amount of working will ever get you to heaven. It's all grace. It's all a free gift. It's hard to say that to someone and then turn around and go, but you have to, you have to give to this thing because you, you anybody who pays rent knows that we, owe, we have bills, right? We have to pay bills. And so the pastor's in this weird position. I just told you there's no amount of working that will save you. And so it would be a lack of integrity to say that you will lose it if you don't give. So we come up with these little twisted ways to say, well, if the gospel's actually taking its work in you, you will be generous, which is not a false statement. But what we're trying to say is, I wish I could take away the salvation that I told you was free so that you have to give, right? That's what we're, that, that's what we're saying. We're, we're like, I really wish I could take this card away from you and hold it as a carrot so that you give and I can go see the gospel's working for you. That's what we want. If that's all the gospel is, that's where we end up. But in, if instead the gospel is that the kingdom of God has broken into this world and that by grace, through faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven that you can come into the kingdom, what we discover is that the, the essential principle of the kingdom is generosity and open-handedness. That to be a kingdom person means you're open-handed and you're generous. Because after all, that's what God is. Right? And so we don't have to compel you. Hey, you have to give. That doesn't work. But if we're actually kingdom people living out the kingdom mission here, generosity is who we become. We give generously. How much? I don't know. The Lord will tell you. Seems like if 10% was good enough for the Old Testament and the, the Holy Spirit now has been given to us and we've been given in abundance, who knows what that number would be? But we do it in lavish and generous ways. Because what we recognize when we come into the kingdom is that God has given us resource and money and he's put it in our hands to give not to what we want, but to what he wants. And so we become generous towards the kingdom mission. So giving money in the church really is just an extension of doing the kingdom mission. Do you see the difference? Does that make sense? Here's the deal. That's true of everything that you've ever heard a pastor try to twist your arm into doing that's in the Bible. Do you know that? Like, Think, think about evangelism for a minute. If the gospel is just that you're saved to go to heaven, no amount of working will work for you to, to be saved... If that's what it is, then why, why do evangelism? Why would I ever share my faith? I'm saved. Hope they figure it out. Makes me uncomfortable. I don't like to talk to these people that I don't know that make me feel weird. So I'm just not going to, right? We just don't, we just sort of slide the thing that we see in Scripture as essential, we slide it off to the optional category. And we go, well, and so pastors know that we're supposed to share our faith, that people are supposed to come into relationship with Jesus. And so we do this thing like, don't you have any compassion for all those people who are going to hell? We 
twist your arm, right? And like, come on, do evangelism. But it doesn't actually make sense. But if the gospel of the kingdom is understood, then what that means is that you've experienced freedom and healing and redemption. And who wouldn't want other people to have this? If you have ever participated in a deliverance, anybody ever participate in a deliverance? Handful of you? If you have ever participated in a deliverance and watched somebody get set free in a moment from the demonic and have a different life in a moment, that's like addictive. Like, holy cow, Jesus actually wants to set people free now? Once you've experienced that kind of freedom, you just want everybody to have it. Turns out that's evangelism. The kingdom has come that you might not be bound any longer. The kingdom has come that you might not be gripped by fear that we would set you free. This is the gospel. And sharing the gospel involves laying hands on people and praying for healing and laying hands on people for deliverance and, and being generous and open-handed and seeing people become free. Otherwise, what's the point of like chasing down all of the, the justice and mercy causes? If it's really just about going to heaven when I die, and I got my ticket, I hope you get yours too, if that's really all it is, why would we ever engage in seeing people freed from sex trafficking? Why would we ever engage in seeing people set free from addiction? Dangle compassion, right? Aren't you compassionate? I'm not that compassionate. But if the gospel actually is the kingdom of God has come, we actually have stuff to do now that is essential. If we truncate the gospel, we tend to make it optional. And I say all this to say, this is true of a life of service. If you believe that the gospel is just forgiveness of sins when you die so that you can go to heaven, if that's all it is, why would I serve? What's the point? Because I feel bad. Can't take away my card, right? I got my fire insurance policy. I'm on my way to heaven. You can't take that from me. Why would I serve? What's the point? And if it turns out I was wrong, can't take away my salvation because it's a free gift, right? But if the gospel of the kingdom is true, if it's actually that you have been invited in to the kingdom, then it turns out that serving becomes all of life. That service actually becomes who you are. That this is relational equity. The way relationships work in the kingdom is service. The opposite of that would be selfishness or self-centeredness. If you have a marriage that's not working, the question that would be worth asking is, am I serving this person? If you're in relationships that are broken, the question worth asking is, am I serving this person? Because if I'm a kingdom person, I'm a servant. You serve because that's the core of who kingdom people are. It's not a thing we do when we feel like it. It's a thing we live into. But there's something we all have to battle with, right? As I'm saying this, you're like, it's not that easy. Like, I could see it, right? I can see it in your eyes. You guys don't realize that. 
Now that I have these glasses, I can see. (laughs) There's something we all have to battle, right? Look at verse 25 with me. It says, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. You see, Jesus paints out this picture. He teases out this thing where service gets twisted with status. Do you see this? Service gets twisted with status, and we equate serving with some sort of status. He uses this word benefactors. Anybody know what a benefactor is? Benefactors in the first century were people who were very wealthy, and where the city couldn't keep up with the needs in the city financially, benefactors would swoop in and be generous. It sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds like, what's wrong with that? Why has Jesus like, got a problem with that? The reason he has a problem with that is, is these people are serving at their own whim when they feel like it, and it doesn't mean things are distributed equally. You see, benefactors would give and be generous in order to secure for themselves political power. I'm very wealthy. Look who I gave to, so I secure myself a political position. Most of the time, politicians in the first century were people who were wealthy benefactors. And everybody was impressed, and now you are in charge of things. So Jesus is like, wait a minute. You're, these people do it whenever they want to put on a show, whenever it feels good, so that they can secure for themselves power. In essence, these people are trading money and service for position and power. It's the equivalent of like finding a politician, donating a really large sum of money, and saying, I want access to laws being made my way. I mean, we don't do that here, right? There's none of that in America. That's first century props, right? First century props. We don't do that now. But in the first century, service for just the sake of service was reserved for the lowest station people. If you had to serve all the time, it meant that you were a very low worth and value person in society. So the only people who are doing service for the sake of service are people who have to. And being someone who always had to do service sort of got equated with, like, I'm not a very important person. I don't have a lot of power. I don't have a lot of value in society. On the opposite side of that, benefactors were like, I have lots of money and I have lots of power. And I do this whenever I want. And so what Jesus calls them to is to intentionally take the low position. He says, what I want you to do is serve all the time. Like, make that who you are, that you serve people no matter what. Here's the problem. You guys see a problem with this? In the eyes of everyone around, we're choosing to devalue ourselves. Is that a problem? Some of you are holier than me, and you go, no, that's not a problem. I don't know about you, but this hits me right in the pride. Doesn't it? I don't want people to think they're better than me. Do you? You like it when people feel like they're better than you and they, I don't like that. I don't want people to feel like they're better than me. And honestly, if we were all honest, we want to serve 
in times and spaces where we can sort of still feel like we preserved our position and power, don't we? We want to serve in a way that, yes, we're serving, but everybody knows that we still have status. As we went around that circle of all the people who serve to make a Sunday morning happen, do you know what I get the most requests for when people want to serve? People want to preach, people want to teach, and people want to lead worship. Don't get me wrong, those are all service-oriented things. But do you know what line's not very long? The line to mow the grass. It's not a very long line. This summer, a handful of people approached me and wanted to mow the grass. Most people want to do this. Very few people want to do that. Do you know what also is not a very long line? Kids' ministry. I'm just saying, a lot of times we want to serve in ways where we still preserve our position of power and our status. And guess what Jesus says? That's, that's the way the benefactors do it. They do it when they want, how they want, in ways that preserve for them power. And Jesus says that's not how we do it. And that's actually what the disciples are arguing about. Who's the greatest? Yeah, 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 Jesus, we're all serving, right? We're humble and we're serving. We're humble and we're serving. But which of us is the greatest servant? Which of us is really the best? Which has the most power? And Jesus says, that's not how this works. It doesn't work that way. So how do we get past that? Because I would assume you all have the same, or most of you, some of you are holier than the rest of us, and that's okay. But I would assume that you all have the same problem with that, right? That in your natural self, serving in such a way that people could devalue you because you're doing it, it just grits on you. And if not, pray for me. Maybe I'm the only one. How do we get past this? Jesus doesn't just say, buck up, guys. Grin and bear it. Just deal with it. Here's what he says. This is beautiful. I want you to see this. Verse 28. He says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Guess what Jesus just did? He said, hey, you're going to take a position in the world of low value and low status. And he doesn't say, and that's just the way it is. You know what he does? He affirms who they are right off the bat. He says, I'm giving you all a kingdom. I'm giving you authority to judge. And I'm giving you authority to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. He's like, in the kingdom, you guys are somebody. In the kingdom, you have high status. In the kingdom, you guys are, are like up there. You guys are real valuable people. Your worth and secure, or your worth and value are secure in the kingdom. You see, what makes kingdom service possible is that it's unattached from trying to earn or prove worth and value. It's the only way that we do kingdom service is it's not connected to us trying to earn our value or earn our worth. And the only way you can actually do it is that you know that Jesus loves you. That I don't approach any service opportunity trying to earn value or status or position. I approach every service opportunity knowing 
that I'm loved by God. It's the only way you can do it. Because what you do otherwise is you're going to walk out there and you're going to walk by the table and you're going to go, I'm going to sign up for kids ministry because he said nobody wants to do it. Right? Just want you guys to know my name's the only one on the youth sheet. Right? Because at some level, if we're not secure in the fact that God loves us, we're going to try to earn our worth and our value by everything that we do. And we carry that into every exchange. What would your life look like if you knew that God loved you? Before you did anything, you were like Jesus. And you knew that God loved you. Before you served in kids' ministry, before you signed up to serve in hospitality, before you served the people at your workplace, before you served your spouse, no matter how good or bad you're going to do it, you can't earn more love or lose love from God. What would you do differently in your life? How would your life look different if you knew that God loved you? Now, I know the pushback we feel. What if people don't appreciate me? Like, what if I serve them and they take advantage of me? Isn't that a very similar thing to, like, what if I give that guy on the side of the street 20 bucks and he just buys alcohol with it? What if I serve this person and they don't change? My marriage is in shambles and I'm going to try to serve them, but what if they don't change? What if they never serve me? What if they don't appreciate what I've done for them and all the ways that I've gone out of my way to serve them? And that's the fear we all have, right? What if our service is not appreciated? I think there's a way forward here. Here's what happens to the disciples after Jesus is resurrected and ascended. You know this argument goes away? They never argue about it again. Who's the greatest? That argument never happens again. Instead, instead, from that point on, they constantly refer to themselves as servants. Constantly, but there's something unique about how they do this. So I'm going to show you a couple of these. Let me show you Romans 1.1. Paul says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, in James 1.1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. You see, every one of them understands that because of Jesus, they've taken on this posture of a servant. But what's unique is they don't think of themselves as servants of these people. They think of themselves as servants of Jesus. See, it doesn't matter what anybody in any of the churches thinks. They're a servant of Jesus. And so they serve you because they're serving Jesus. That's the way forward. The only way you continue in a posture of service When the world around you doesn't appreciate it, the only way that you continue as a servant in your workplace when everybody makes fun of you, the only way you can continue as a servant in your family when everybody else ridicules you, the only way you can continue as a servant in your marriage when your partner does not reciprocate is because you know you're serving Jesus. I'm not serving you all. You all benefit because I'm serving Jesus. But do you know what happens? When you serve Jesus that way, you begin to see Jesus in everyone. You begin to see Jesus everywhere. 
Mother Teresa, you guys know the name Mother Teresa? She's a missionary to India to the poorest and most marginalized, and these people could never pay her back. Many of them would never even acknowledge the level of service that she gave to them. Nevertheless, she served faithfully for decades, and here's what she said. She said, I see Jesus in every human being. I say to myself, this is a hungry Jesus, and I feed him. This one has leprosy or gangrene. I must wash him and tend to him. I serve because I love Jesus. You may be the only one in your world who serves everyone else. The only way forward is that you know that I'm a servant of Jesus. That I have come into this kingdom and I'm a different person now. One who is marked by service. My whole life is service. And I can continue to serve because I'm serving Jesus. It's the only way forward. But I think it's the way that we transform the spaces we inhabit by the power of the gospel as well. That we serve people who didn't ask us to. We serve people who don't necessarily even appreciate it. There's an interesting thing that happens in Scripture where uh, Paul's answering this question about what happens in a marriage if one is a believer and one's not. You go, well, they must, must have to get divorced then, I guess. Paul says, no, you should stay as you are because you'll be the one that brings them to Jesus because you'll serve and you'll break down the hard heart. It's the way it works. The gospel actually spreads as we become people of service. We actually get the chance to share Jesus with people because we have become servants of Jesus. I think that's what God calls us to. I think that's who we are. We're people who serve Jesus and the world around us benefits. It becomes more like the kingdom. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.